Well, again, I, I, I bid you welcome. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the second chapter of Ephesians. The text on which the sermon is based is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You can find it on page 1159 in the navy blue Bibles in your pew. And there we find these words. You were dead, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord, and again we say, thanks be to God. Today we begin, we begin to walk through one of the most glorious passages in the entire New Testament. This is, to my mind, the most fantastic summary of the work of salvation in Jesus Christ ever recorded. Paul describes our condition before Christ, the work of Christ to bring us to Himself, and the nature of our life after conversion, all of it rooted in the grace of God. He's just described, if you recall, in chapter 1, the sovereign, electing, predestining, and adopting love of the Father, that love that has put us in Christ, in the Son, identified with Him, and therefore inheriting all the blessings that are His. The Apostle Paul then, toward the end of chapter 1, speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit in these Christians, how thankful he is for it. I, I thank God every time. I remember you in my prayers and so on. And he closes with the, this glorious picture of the triumphant Christ over all the earth at the end of chapter 1. And then he, he comes back to his readers, as it were. He, he comes down out of, out of heaven, this heavenly glorious picture of, of the ascended and ruling and reigning Christ to remind them of what God has done in their own narrative, in their own lives. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's how he starts. Indeed, even though I began by, by reading all the verses 1 through 10, I'm going to focus this morning on verses 1 through 3. It's just that 1 through 10 is so good, I couldn't help myself. But 1 through 3 is where we're going to start this morning. And so listen to them again. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. These three verses are going to be our primary focus this morning. 
I wanted to take some time with them because I think Martin Luther was right when he observed that if your doctrine of sin is right and biblical, all the rest of your doctrines have a shot at being biblical and sound. Now, that's not saying that if you get the doctrine of sin right, it's a guarantee that everything else will be on track. But if your doctrine of sin is off, everything else is going to be off because you haven't the faintest idea of who you are before God. Amen. So if our understanding of sin and what it means to be a sinner is that important, and I would insist that it is, let's begin by exploring this together. I want to show you there are at least three things we can learn today from these first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. First, that we are dead in sin. Second, that apart from Christ, apart from His grace, we are driven by sin. And third, that we are doomed by sin. Isn't that nice and neat and cutesy how that all fits? So first, let's start. We're dead in sin. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and so on. Many of you are familiar with the great, great cinematic masterpiece that is The Princess Bride. There is one scene late in the movie featuring Miracle Max, played by Billy Crystal, who is tasked with bringing a dead Wesley back to life. And after exam... Oh, don't kill it for me, come on. As I said, it's a masterpiece. And after examining the body, he says, your friend here is only mostly dead. He concludes he can help him, therefore, because mostly dead is slightly alive, right? Paul here speaks of the condition of sinners before faith in Christ in Ephesians 2, and he does not, in fact, call them mostly dead. He says they are dead. They are all dead. They are dead dead, spiritually speaking. Paul is describing what Calvinists call total depravity. In fact, this is the root and foundation doctrine of all that gets called Calvinism. Uh, I remember one time a Roman Catholic cousin of mine asking me to explain what Calvinism was. So I started by explaining total depravity. And he took great issue with it. He said, no, that's wrong. We spent about 30 or 40 minutes just talking about the nature of sin and total depravity until he finally gave up and said, okay, whatever, 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 whatever. Just, just tell me what the rest of it is. So I did. And the first part, you know, the discussion about sin and depravity took us about 30 or 40 minutes. You know how long the rest took? About five minutes. Even the dreaded L? Limited atonement. Yes, even the dreaded L. Why is that? Because everything I said after that, he thought for a moment, then shrugged his shoulders and said, well, yeah, if you believe what you said about sin and depravity, that has to be true. Right? And then so from there, every other step, he was like, well, yeah, if, if what you said about sin is right, then yeah, that, that follows. I mean, obviously. He rightly understood what I think a lot of people miss, that if total depravity really means total depravity, then everything else in our doctrine of salvation fo does follow from that. Paul is explaining that we do nothing to contribute to our salvation because dead men don't contribute anything to their resurrection. And if we struggle with that, it's because of our pride. We really want to find some way of contributing to our salvation. But Paul says we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. 
Now, how do, well, you, may, you may have seen me insert the word spiritually there. How do I know that Paul is talking only about spiritual death? He's, he's talking about spiritual death because as he acknowledges in, the, in our passage, sinners can be physically alive but spiritually dead. In verse 2, Paul says that this death is a death in which you once walked. So apparently the dead men are walking. Okay? So when we speak of being dead in trespasses, we are talking about a spiritual condition of sinful man apart from the grace of Christ before coming to Christ. It is one of spiritual death even though he is walking around and, physically speaking, living life. So what does spiritual death mean? Well, at its root, it simply means that before we come to Jesus, all that we do is sinful. All that we do is rooted in our sin. Okay? To illustrate that, I'll, I'll, I'll share this with you briefly, right? So, Because that sounds odd at first. You might think, well, look, I mean, can't an unbeliever build a hospital, right? Aren't you, are you saying that's sin? Uh, so in one sense, it is certainly virtuous to build a hospital. It benefits and blesses the community and all of a man's neighbors. That's true. But to illustrate the point, I want, I want to uh, sort of give you, give you this picture. I think I've shared it with you before, actually, of a, of a young man who, who tells his dad, I want to use the car Friday night to, to go out on a date, let's say. And, and dad says, well, if you're going to use the car, you're going to wash it. I don't want to wash the car. I don't feel like washing the car. Look, this is the deal. If you want to use the car, you're going to wash it. So Thursday afternoon, he goes out with a bucket and a sponge with a sullen look on his face, right? And then he's scrubbing the windshield. And he's, he's got the... Right? He's angry like there's steam coming out of his ears, right? Okay. Did he wash the car? Yes, he did wash the car all the time with hatred in his heart, anger in his heart, bitterness in his heart toward his father. Okay, so he washed the car, right? He built the hospital, right? In, in, the, midst, in the midst of sin and rebellion against God as Father. There is nothing we do to earn our salvation. But our spiritual deadness also means that we can do nothing to prepare ourselves to come to Christ. There is nothing we can do to make ourselves a more fit candidate for salvation because this is the reality if this passage doesn't mean that we're dead in sin and incapable of coming to God ourselves that means that we in the end have something to boast about you remember you remember in the latter part of the passage so that no one can boast like if you want to say well we're if, if we're mostly dead in sin you know, we're, we're lying in the hospital bed and we can just barely summon up the strength to press the call button. Right? Well, then you have something to boast about. The reason you were saved and others weren't is not because you were more spiritually sensitive or reasonable or open to the Gospel. This is from our Confession of Faith, uh, uh, chapter 9, uh, the chapter on free will. Man, by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good, and here it is, dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Okay? So you're not able to save yourself or get yourself ready to be saved. So we're dead in sin. 
Not only that, but all we do is influenced or seasoned by sin. It's rooted in sin apart from Christ. So that's the second point. We're driven by sin. Okay? So we're, we're dead in sin, and then on top of that, we're driven by sin insofar as we live. Right? Look at verse 2. Um, trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So notice some things here. Spiritually dead people, again, spiritually dead people are not immobile. They go places. Specifically, they follow after the devil. Here called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay? Paul then calls them back to their life before Christ, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So these dead men walk, they live in some sense, they carry out desires. So in what sense are they dead? How, what does this death look like and how does it take shape into what we call total depravity? Well, notice first, notice first that our three great enemies are present here in this text. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay? Paul speaks of the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. There it is, all three of them. Notice second, that our sin, if, if I can put it to you this way, sin grabs us by our nature. We were by nature children of wrath. What can we learn from this? Well, again, to repeat the first point, we are dead in sin, and that means that apart from Christ, here's the second point, we're driven by sin. All our actions are wrapped up in our sins because apart from Christ, every action we take is an action amidst hatred of God, right? He washed the car. He built the hospital. This is why I said total depravity means that sin has affected all of us. And I don't just mean all the people. I mean all the parts of you from head to toe. We get this from Paul's own language of spiritual death because not to put too fine a point on it, but death applies to your whole body, your whole self. And also from his language in Romans chapter 3, which is where we're going to go now. Now, I've, I've kind of altered the format of uh, how our Scripture is going to present here, and you're going to see why as I walk you through this. So, so in Romans 3, Paul is describing the situation of mankind. Romans 1, Gentiles uh, have sinned and are hypocrites. Romans 2, Jews have sinned and are hypocrites. Romans 3, we've all sinned and are hypocrites. We're all without excuse. And so here's what he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. And if you're wondering, but what does the Greek say? It says, no one understands and no one seeks for God. Glad I could help you with that. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruined in misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's a pretty terrible diagnosis. What I want you to notice is, first of all, well, actually, <laughs> it's, not on the, it's not on the slide there, but it is if you look in your Bible in this portion of Romans 3, you're just going to see a bunch of quotation marks, like almost at the end and the beginning of every sentence here. 
Apologies for not replicating it on the slide. But why? Like, why are quotation marks everywhere? Because Paul is quoting something. Lots of things, actually. He's quoting the Psalms, mostly. If you investigate your footnotes, this is what you find. That first bit, none is righteous, uh, no one understands, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless. That's a combination of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, that's from Psalm 5. The venom of snakes, the venom of asps is under their lips, that's from Psalm 140, verse 3. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, that's from Psalm 10. Their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, the way of peace they've not known. This is actually from Proverbs, Proverbs 1 and Proverbs 3. And then finally, there is no fear of God before their eyes, as from Psalm 36. What can we learn from that? That's interesting. Two things, I think, very briefly. First, notice that what all of these psalm selections, if you like, what they all have in common is that they mention body parts. Okay? That's probably why Paul is grabbing these verses from different places, all centered around this theme of something to do with sin and something to do with, with the body. Right? So he's using the language of a body. If we can go to the next slide, please. I've got a visual aid for you. So here's Paul using the language of the body. Right? He starts with the throat, an open grave. And then the tongue, you, sorry, you can't read that at all, but it's, uh, it, it is a quota- it's the quotation from Romans 3. Throat, open grave, tongues for deception, lips is where they keep their poison, mouths is where they keep their curses and bitterness, and then he goes to the bottom of the body. Their feet are used so they can hunt and murder and hurt people. Their paths are in which they run are ruin and misery. Uh, the path of peace they have not known. Their feet have not known this path. And then he jumps back up to the top of the body and says their eyes have no fear of God. Paul is saying that sin corrupts every part of you. Sin affects us from head to toe. That's the point. Okay? He's grabbed all this language from the Psalms to say sin affects you from head to toe. It affects the way you talk, the way you act, the way you think, the way you think about what you think. Sin gets into everything. That's what total depravity means. That the total package of everything you are has been affected by sin, including your sense of logic, your thoughts about God on a Tuesday afternoon, your understanding of who Jesus is, your understanding of yourself, your desires, your speech, all of it. And thus, unless Christ saves you, all you do is driven and tainted by sin. That is what total depravity means. It doesn't mean you're as sinful as you possibly could be. I would submit to you that's what hell is for. It's where people in eternity become as sinful as they possibly could be. But it does mean that no part of the sinner has been untouched by sin. The second thing we can learn (laughs) is that a lot of our teaching comes from our music. Paul in Romans 3 seems to want to explain this sin affects from head to toe idea. He could have just said that. But instead, he starts quoting his worship songs. Paul would have grown up singing the Psalms. And so when he's trying to find language to make his theological case, sin affects us from head to toe, he starts grabbing his worship music. 
It would be like if I said, I want you to understand the love and forgiveness of God. It's like a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That fountain is like a river flowing deep and wide. And if you want to know what can wash away your sin, it's nothing but the blood of Jesus. Right? Now, almost all of you in here know that what I just did was grab lines from three familiar hymns about the forgiveness of Jesus. That is more or less what Paul is doing here. When he wants to put a hard concept on display for his readers in Rome, he goes to his songs because your songs always shape not only how you talk, but I would say how you explain the deep things of God, which is probably the main and most central reason we're learning to sing the psalms together. So we, we've talked about how we're dead in sin. We've talked about how, uh, how we are driven by sin. And then the third point, that we're doomed by our sin. Verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires. So Paul doesn't say that you don't have desires, but rather that you're owned by those desires. Desires of the body and the mind were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Children of wrath by nature. What is Paul saying? He is saying you always act in accordance with your nature. You always act in accordance with your nature. This is what the grace of Jesus does. It renews our nature. Children of wrath, he says, is what we were. In chapter 1, remember, Paul talks about how his readers were the adopted sons of God. Adopted sons of God. Now in chapter 2, he says, remember when you were children of wrath. That's a way of speaking in Paul's day, especially in a Jewish context. When Paul says that, you know, Paul says you're children of wrath, right? In the Gospels, James and John get called the sons of thunder. That doesn't mean that their parents were Mr. and Mrs. Thunder. In 1 Samuel 2, the sons of Eli are called sons of worthlessness, not because their parents were Mr. and Mrs. Worthless. Rather, the idea is, is that these boys seem so worthless that that might actually be a worthwhile explanation. These fellows seem so worthless, it might make sense to suppose they had been birthed by worthlessness itself. And here Paul says, you were children of wrath. You are an angry people. Angry at each other. Angry at God. Spurning Him, rejecting Him, mocking Him, ridiculing Him, demanding He answer all your objections, putting yourself in the place of God, shaking your fist at the heavens, and thereby provoking the anger of a righteous God. All of this could be forgiven. Uh, all, all of us, uh, uh, how am I trying to say this? Taking in all of that, one could be forgiven for assuming that you are a descendant of wrath itself, children of wrath and therefore doomed, without God and without hope in the world. Making gods for yourself and making yourself out to be God by the way you think about God and talk about God. Did you know, for instance, that an unregenerate person can love the Lord? Hmm. An unregenerate person can love Jesus so long as it's a fake Jesus. Some of you are like breathing a sigh of relief. Oh, this is why we must know the Lord. If I meet a man at Tampin Grind, let's say, and he says, you worship Jesus, so do I. Wow, great, great. Tell me about Jesus, friend. And he says, Jesus is the name of a root vegetable that I keep in a drawer in my fridge. And I pray to it and I worship it. I think there's been a misunderstanding. Right? But he worships Jesus, right? 
No. That's a silly example, but I give it to you in order to make the point, what does it mean to worship Jesus? As soon as we make the claim, we have to, we have to answer who this man is. You might have neighbors that talk a big game about Jesus, but is it a made-up Jesus? Attaching the name of the true God to an idol is pretty old-fashioned, actually. Never forget that when the Israelites worshipped the golden calf, they named it Yahweh. We always are tempted to love a false version of Jesus. Whether it's the one we make up, the one we see on TV, the one we got from some other book than the Bible, the version that we found in a song that we like, or the one who reveals himself to us by the Holy Spirit's illumination in his word in the Bible. That's where we, that's where we find our Jesus. But apart from that, apart from, apart from God's Word and God's Holy Spirit, we will design new versions of the God we like better. Or, we will be a bit more honest and simply despise the God of Scripture. Like Edmund, who, when he first hears the name of Aslan, he hates him. Edmund has eaten the Turkish delight. He's on the side of the witch. And the first time he hears the name of Aslan, he immediately senses that he's on a different team. That is the ordinary reaction, by the way, to the unvarnished gospel. It is hatred of God and hatred of His people. And so this is how our sin dooms us. It locks us into hopelessness and hell apart from knowing and loving our God revealed to us in Jesus. And it tells us, the Word tells us, that apart from Him we're dead and cannot save ourselves. So is it hopeless? No, I didn't say there was no hope. I said there's no hope in anything you do. There is no hope for salvation from within. It must come from outside of us. This is the great lie of our day, right? Just search inside of yourself. Look deep into your own feelings. Search your own heart. Search your insides and you will find the truth. That's one of the worst lies you've ever heard. The reality is you will never find God inside of you. That is really good news that you cannot save yourself because if you have to do something about your lust first and then God will save you, you should despair. It is not possible. You cannot fix anything. You need salvation to come from the outside. And it comes from one place alone, the death the burial, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon once put it this way. He said, your heart is a walnut heart (laughs) and it needs a nutcracker to break it open, right? And what I really wanted to do this morning was bring a walnut and one of those little nutcrackers you can hold in your hand, right? And break the walnut open. I was told by a nice man at Kroger that they don't sell uh, in-shell walnuts this time of year. But, so just imagine, imagine if I had. But think of it this way, those, those nutcrackers that it's, it's just basically like two sort of rods and then you, you, you bring them together to crush the walnut. Think of that as almost kind of what we're talking about. One side is you must repent and believe. The other side is you can't, you're dead in your sin. And when these two things are preached together, God breaks hard hearts. And so you must repent. You must repent. I thought you said I can't. You can't. (laughs) 
Well, you just said, I can't. Yeah, correct. So do it. <laughs> but you said, I can't. Well, do it anyway. When this message is preached, God gives new hearts. And the thing to which you just said, I can't, is the thing you will find yourself doing. And so the free offer of the gospel goes out today. From dust you were made, to dust you shall return. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Today. Now. Believe it. In the name of Jesus. Amen. And so our Father, we thank you for the good word that gives hope to dead sinners like us that we'd be raised to life by your word. By, by the same word that Lazarus heard coming out of the grave. Not Lazarus do some things first, but Lazarus come forth. And so call us out of our graves, our Lord Jesus, that we might live with you today and forever. Amen. Yeah.